American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Annie Moore, the Irish Catholic teen who was the first immigrant to be processed at Ellis Island. So as a refresher, let's talk a little about Ellis Island and why it became the major point of entry for immigrants. Sure. So for the first hundred years of the history of the United States, there really weren't any laws restricting immigration into the country. There were laws about becoming a citizen, but the borders were generally unenforced. If you could make it here, good for you. You could work, pay taxes, serve in the military, and enjoy the liberties that our Constitution and laws afforded. But you couldn't vote or hold office. That required becoming a naturalized citizen, and that was regulated from the beginning. This open borders policy towards immigration began to change in the latter half of the 19th century, however. Yes, the effort to regulate immigration began for a few reasons. One, frankly, eugenics. The idea had taken hold that some races were superior to others, and the population had to protect itself from being tainted by inferior genes. Two, among those who didn't go in for eugenics, there was a legitimate concern about communicable diseases coming into crowded cities. New epidemics could spread quickly and decimate a population. The third was political unrest. With the emergence of anti-liberty philosophies and ideologies in Europe, The U.S. government was concerned not to allow into the country people who would foment political unrest here. And the fourth was that officials didn't want to let in people who would just become a burden on society, like the sick or those unable to take care of themselves, and who had no one to support them here in the U.S. already. So these concerns drove the various states to begin to regulate immigration. Right, because it was done at the state level There was no federal agency to regulate immigration at the time. No, and that caused problems. Some states like New York had many more immigrants coming in than others, which gave those states like New York a lot of power and responsibility when it came to immigration. Consider that New York City and its harbor were a primary point of entry for arrival for transatlantic ocean liners from Europe. When the non-Americans disembarked, they were subject to whatever New York state officials had set up to manage immigration. And that also meant they were subject to whatever corruption was running things in New York City. Right. And things weren't handled in an even-handed manner. Those passengers who came across the oceans as first- and second-class passengers generally received very little scrutiny. As they crossed the ocean, some immigration officials on board the ship would visit with each of the wealthier immigrants and just check to be sure their papers were in order. There were rarely questions raised about health or anyone's ability to support themselves, So when they arrived in port, they just walked off the ship and into the city. Third-class and steerage passengers were another story. These were the people who were more likely fleeing from destitution, war, or other calamity and only barely paid their way on board. They spent the two-week voyage below deck generally in very uncomfortable and unsanitary conditions. When they arrived in port, they were brought ashore in barges and processed through a series of health tests and an interview to determine their suitability for entry. Right. Like you said, the government officials wanted to make sure that they wouldn't be a burden and that they wouldn't cause a problem. So New York set up their first immigration processing center at Castle Garden at the Battery, which is at the very southern tip of Manhattan Island. This served as the New York point of entry from 1855 through 1890, and about 8 million immigrants passed through that office. It was, 
far too frequently a model of incompetence and corruption. And then the surge of immigration in the latter half of the 19th century, especially from Ireland, Germany, and the Scandinavian countries, began to overwhelm Castle Garden. So to deal with the surge and to bring a measure of professionalism, uniformity, efficiency, and competency to immigration, the federal government stepped in. And yes, I managed to say that with a straight face. But in this case, they really did. Right, they did, especially compared to the mess that was Castle Garden. The first thing the federal government did was to settle on Ellis Island as the site for the new immigration station. Uh, What went into that decision? Well, they knew that New York was the number one point of entry, so it had to be there. They also knew it had to be on an island so the people they brought to it would be contained and couldn't just leak into the city. And they needed it to be something they already controlled. Ellis Island was in New York Harbor. It was an island, as the name suggests. And they already used it for a number of purposes, most of them military. So it was a natural fit. Naturally. They built a very large building out of Georgia Pine that would be able to handle the many thousands of immigrants every day, and it opened on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1892. And this is where Annie Moore comes into the story. Yes, finally. Annie Moore was a 17-year-old Catholic Irish girl born and raised in County Cork, which is on the southwest corner of the Emerald Isle. Her parents had already come over to the U.S. four years prior. Annie and two of her brothers stayed back in Ireland until the money was raised to bring them over. So finally, on December 20th, 1891, Annie, with her two brothers Philip and Anthony, boarded the steamer Nevada as steerage passengers for the 12-day crossing. The Nevada arrived in New York Harbor on the night of December 31st, but the steerage passengers weren't permitted to disembark until the following morning. And when they did, they were transferred to barges fitted with festive red, white, and blue bunting and taken amid bells clanking and much fanfare to be processed through the brand new facility on Ellis Island. Annie and her brothers were near the head of the line as the gangplank was lowered, and with a little help from her brothers and an Irish longshoreman who shouted, Ladies first, Annie slipped past a large German man and became the first immigrant to cross the threshold of the immigration processing station on Ellis Island. After she and her brothers were officially registered, she was given a $10 gold coin to commemorate the occasion, and she said she would never part with it, but would always keep it as a pleasant memento of the occasion. Also present at the ceremony was a Catholic priest who blessed her and also gave her some silver coins, and then another gentleman who slipped her five dollars. Thus enriched, Annie and her brothers passed into the adjoining waiting room and into their parents' embraces. It's fitting that a Catholic chaplain was present, given how many of the immigrants who passed through Ellis Island were Catholic. Yes, during its 62 years of use, more than 12 million immigrants came through Ellis Island. The biggest waves came from southern, central, and eastern Europe, so Italians, Greeks, Slovaks, Ukrainians, Poles, Croats, Czechs, all all kinds of Slavs. Many of them were Orthodox, but a whole lot more were Eastern Catholic. And what did the church do to help the immigrants? Well, initially, not much at a national level. Different Catholic ethnic societies had been aiding immigrants from their respective homelands for years, but the church wasn't organized in any national way until 1919, when the National Catholic Welfare Council was established to coordinate the efforts of Catholics across the country. In 1920, the NCWC, which was the precursor to today's U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, established the Bureau of Immigration. This bureau maintained relations with the Catholic churches in the countries from which the people were coming, and they maintained staff on Ellis Island. They were able to aid immigrants as they arrived, to connect them to needed assistance, and send word to the church organs at their intended destinations that they were coming. 
More local to Ellis Island, the Archbishop of New York, Patrick Hayes, tasked the Archdiocesan Council of Catholic Women with helping the massive number of immigrants who stayed in and near New York City. In its first year alone, the council helped more than 6,000 immigrants. Part of their care included having people available who spoke every language, so immigrants who didn't speak English would be able to communicate. Yeah, that had to have been a tremendous help, especially since so many of these people didn't want to leave their home countries, but have been forced to flee conflict and oppression. They weren't exactly in a position to learn English before making the journey. Right, like your Polish ancestors and my Ukrainian and Slovak ancestors. In fact, my Ukrainian great-grandmother never learned English and really never left the farm here in Ohio that she and my great-grandfather had settled on. So your ancestors made it to the Midwest. How far did Annie Moore get? Well, for the longest time, it was thought that an Annie Moore who ended up in Texas was the Annie Moore. But within the past 20 years, that was found not to be the case. In fact, the actual Annie Moore of this story married a Catholic German named Joseph Augustus Scheer, who worked at the Fulton Fish Market. Annie and Joseph lived in a flat on Manhattan's Lower East Side, and Annie rarely left the few blocks around their home for the rest of her life. They had 11 children, but only five lived to adulthood. Annie herself died in 1924 of heart failure at just 50 years old and was buried near, near her children in Queens. But her surviving children and her brother's children have done the American thing. They have spread out and married people of many other ethnic backgrounds. Yes. In fact, it's estimated that 40 percent of the U.S. population descends from people who came through Ellis Island. That's a lot of people who have a significant moment of family history on that tiny island in New York Harbor. It really is. And Annie Moore's story and her extended family are something of a microcosm of the American story and the American Catholic story. Come to America, enjoy liberty, live life, pass it on to the next generation. Ellis Island's role as the primary way for immigrants to enter the country waned after World War I, when the U.S. opened new embassies in many countries where there had been none before. The paperwork and health checks could be done there before the person left their native country. After 1924, the only people sent to be processed at Ellis Island were those whose paperwork was somehow not in order or who had other big question marks upon arrival. The processing facility at Ellis Island was shut down permanently in 1954. Twelve million people had been processed through Ellis Island during its 62 years of use. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson added Ellis Island to the Statue of Liberty National Monument. Since that time, the island and its facilities have been open to the public and enhanced bit by bit to make it what it is today, the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration, a museum which receives 2 million, a museum which receives 2 million visitors annually. And ready to welcome those two million visitors is a bronze statue of the first girl welcomed to America on Ellis Island, 17-year-old Annie Moore, with a look of hope and happiness on her face, carrying her case and holding onto her hat in the breeze. This statue is the sister statue to the one on the docks in Cove, Ireland, the port from which Annie and her brothers disembarked. The statue in Ireland depicts Annie and her two brothers looking out to sea, toward their new life in the new world. The two statues demonstrate the lasting connection to the homeland. Each immigrant may leave their home, but they always bring some of it with them. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. 
You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of SQPN, with a special message. The StarQuest Network is fulfilling its mission to explore the intersection of faith and pop culture, and in the past year we've reached stunning new heights. Our programs are reaching broad new audiences with a message that helps us discern good entertainment, make sense of the world, and share the gospel with others. We continue to launch new shows and bring back great shows. We just relaunched Secrets of Star Wars, which comes at the perfect moment to capture the excitement over the new show, The Mandalorian, and the climax of the new Star Wars movies. The support of our audience is vital to this work and has helped us grow closer to meeting our financial obligations. For that, we are very grateful. But we still need to close the gap. Every new gift extends our deadline. But until we eliminate our deficits, the future of StarQuest and your favorite shows remain in question. This is why it's crucial we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we are very grateful and we ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you are not yet a supporter, please become one now. We urgently need your help and every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? That lets us provide more than 40 hours of professionally produced shows with compelling content. We have special thank you gifts for donors at several giving levels. If you are a business owner or just want to provide a leadership level of support, we now have a special giving level for sponsors, like in public broadcasting. For $500 per month, you or your business can sponsor one of the shows on our network. Listeners will hear a message in every episode thanking you for your sponsorship and giving your website. We'll also have your name and link on the SQPN webpage and in the show notes of every episode during your sponsorship. Whatever level of support you can offer, whether large or small, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas, and remember that your gifts are tax-deductible. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. And may God bless you and yours as we approach the celebration of our Lord's birth.